Hello, this is Living with Feeling, a podcast about emotions in the 21st century, brought to you by the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. I'm Thomas Dixon. In 1825, the English educational pioneer Samuel Wilderspin produced an influential book, Infant Education, or Practical Remarks on the Importance of Educating the Infant Poor. It argued that education should be addressed to children's hearts before their heads. His was a system, Wilderspin said, based on love. The aim was to win the affections of the children and teach them how to master their feelings. One of the lessons involved asking, what is the greatest courage? The hoped-for answer was, to conquer our bad passions and bad inclinations, because they are the most difficult to conquer. Wilderspin was a pioneer, but it was common enough, even 200 years ago, to say that young children needed to learn how to manage their emotions, and that was something that they might do at school. Since then, both the social context and the curriculum have changed. Children are no longer taught in a moralistic way to conquer their bad passions. Today, instead, emotional literacy, mindfulness and well-being take their place on the curriculum alongside times tables, fronted adverbials and football skills. Over the last few years, I've been working with colleagues on a series of lessons myself called Developing Emotions. They're designed to boost emotional literacy. I'm very proud of these lessons, but I'm still a relative newcomer to the field. And so I wanted to meet some people who've been thinking about how to help school children understand emotions for a lot longer. Adrian Bethune is a primary school teacher who not only delivers lessons in happiness, but also has written a book on well-being in the primary classroom and founded Teach Happy, an organisation committed to putting well-being and happiness at the heart of education. We're in Galaxy class at Broughton Junior School in Aylesbury and we're about to see Adrian teach one of his lessons. So what are you going to be doing? So this is lesson nine of the Pause B mindfulness curriculum and it's called The Storytelling Mind and it's exploring the power of our thoughts and how our thoughts, particularly worries, can kind of snowball and what we can do about that. And what are you hoping the children are going to get out of this? They're going to go away better able to do what? I hope that this lesson will get across how our thoughts aren't facts and we don't have to believe them and actually we can kind of maybe step back from our thoughts and just have a bit of space between us and our thoughts. And that's quite, that's like an ancient stoic idea, isn't it? That we don't experience the world, we experience our interpretation of the world and our thoughts of the world. Easier said than done, though, detaching oneself from those. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, we'll hope that Galaxy class get the idea (laughs) and leave looking much less worried. (laughs) I'm just going to invite you to take the torchlight of your attention down the body to the soles of the feet. Just see if you can feel your feet making contact with the ground beneath you. Just being curious about any sensations in the feet right now. The children of Galaxy class are in year four, so between eight and nine years old. Every week they do an hour's class as part of a structured well-being curriculum delivered by Adrian Bethune. This happens throughout years four, five and six of the school, which describes itself as having a whole-school approach to promoting positive mental health. The lessons begin 
with a mindfulness session. In this case, a fofbok. That's feet on floor, body on chair. When you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. So feel free to have a bit of a stretch. And then just turning to someone on your table, just sharing what you noticed during that fofbok practice. The children are encouraged to notice and talk about how they're feeling and the sensations in their bodies. Okay, would anyone like to share how that bop bop practice was for them? Louis, can you have a seat in your chair, please? Uh, Joey? Um, I kind of felt like I was like sinking into the ground. Sinking into Was that a pleasant sensation or was that unpleasant for you? Quite nice. Okay, thank you, Joey. Ethan? The idea is that this kind of activity, in which children recognise and name their feelings, will get them into good habits of emotional regulation, which in turn will boost their well-being. I was also struck by the way Adrian teaches the children about neuroscience and how their brains produce thoughts and emotions. They learn to think of the different functions and areas of the brain as making up a team. Team brain. Now this might be a good opportunity actually for us Galaxy to, to share with Thomas and Natalie what we've been learning about our brain, particularly team brain. And there's four main parts that we've been learning about. Uh, the first one, which is often referred to as the team leader, uh, the prefrontal cortex. And we've been learning, it has lots of different jobs and functions that it does. We've been learning about three key ones. Could anyone share? the three main jobs of the prefrontal cortex. So, uh, if you just kind of give me one of those jobs. Um, it helps you to focus. Okay, it helps us to focus and to concentrate. It helps you make choices. Good, it helps us make choices. And if we can focus and concentrate really well, if we can make wise choices that help us and the people around us, <coughs> what's the third job, Isha? Um, yeah, it helps us to be our best, helps us to be at our best. So that's the prefrontal cortex, and it works really closely with these other parts of the brain. So what is the point of teaching children the names of different parts of the brain? What it can help children do is understand themselves better. So when we teach children, say, about their amygdala, that it's, it's in a reactive part of the brain that it, you know, controls the fight-flight-freeze response, I think it, it helps them understand when they have these reactions in certain situations, so maybe they're feeling scared before a test and they feel their heart rate increase, they can say to themselves, this is my amygdala reacting, and that can help them regulate their emotions in that moment. So it's as much about helping them deal with the feeling in the moment as it is about teaching them neuroscience. Yeah? It's, it's about giving them a way to distance themselves a bit, yeah? to say, in a, way, in a good way to say, it's not me, it's my brain. So it's not that my whole being is in panic, it's that my amygdala is overreacting a bit. Yeah, so this has been kind of shown with adults and mindfulness in particular that one of the key things that helps people manage their levels of anxiety or even symptoms of depression is this technique called decentering, where you're kind of stepping back from your thoughts and your feelings and you're able to maybe slightly, one, create a bit of space between you and your feelings and your thoughts and two, observe them and be able to even label them like, you know, that's a worrying thought or that's a judgmental thought. And so, yeah, if children 
are understanding maybe which part of the brain is activating when they're having a certain feeling that's helping them decenter it's helping them step back and feel like okay I'm feeling this way because I'm scared and this is my amygdala taking over so we're now going to be shifting our attention onto something that we all do which is uh, think uh, but my question is to you which I'd like you to discuss on your table is what are thoughts okay it's a huge question that philosophers uh, and lots of Wow, what are thoughts? It was great to see these eight and nine-year-olds eagerly trying to solve ancient philosophical problems, as well as doing their mindfulness exercises. In this lesson, the children were learning a kind of detachment from their emotions, like trainee Stoics. There are three key steps here. Realising that emotions like anxiety are based on thoughts about the world. Realising that you are not those thoughts and can detach from them. And finally, being able to criticise those thoughts and realise when they are distorted or mistaken representations of the world. What our next session is about is focusing on a specific type of thought, which we've got up on the board here, linked to it like emotional thoughts, which are worries. And we've also got the word anxious. If we're worried, we might be feeling a bit anxious. And the key thing to say, Galaxy, just hands down for now, is that everybody worries. Okay, it doesn't matter how young or old or clever you might be, everybody has worries. So I have worries about little things and big things. Professors have worries. Uh, children have worries. Your parents have worries. Mr. Reed, Mrs. Rackham will have worries. So Galaxy, one of the reasons that we worry is our minds make things up. Often when we don't have all of the information, our minds try and fill in the gaps. And I'm going to highlight this now with Sam's story. So I'm going to give you a little bit of information. I was really impressed by Adrian's lessons with the children. But there are still some people who think that valuable curriculum time should not be given over to this kind of thing. What do you say to people who might say, that's not what school time is for? You know, you should be teaching them to spell and to mm. do their maths and to learn about history. You know, you shouldn't be you know, wasting lesson time on feelings. Yeah. Um, that's not the job of schools. Mm. You know, what, what, do you come across that and what do you say to it if you do? Yeah, there are what I would call cynical uh, voices that think that schools are just educational settings to teach the traditional subjects to help children get the qualifications, grades they need to progress to different stages of their lives. And, you know, I would simply say that without good emotional health and well-being, it's very hard for children to achieve their best academically. Uh, and this is borne out by research as well, that generally speaking, a happy child is a learning child. And, you know, if a child's got acute anxiety or low mood or depression, they're either not in school, therefore they're not learning in a classroom, or they're finding it very hard to pay attention, to get on well with their peers, all the things that help children do well in school. So, yeah, I just take a more holistic approach to this and just think if we want children to learn well, they need to, to feel well as well. That would seem to make sense. It's a claim that I've heard, and in fact have made myself many times. Happier children will learn better. There should be a virtuous circle between well-being and academic attainment. While making this episode, I looked more closely at the evidence for this. It does seem to be true that emotional well-being can have a positive impact on how well children do academically, especially in the primary years, and can also lead to better school engagement at secondary level. 
However, there are other studies, including OECD research, suggesting the opposite, that there's a trade-off between happiness and academic attainment. Schools can promote well-being or good test scores, but not both. This, of course, is hotly contested by educational experts. As ever, the evidence is complicated and open to different interpretations, and more research is undoubtedly needed. But in any case, whether or not emotional well-being is correlated with high test scores, surely schools should be places that nurture happiness and emotional well-being anyway. That's certainly what I think. And there's another major reason why people are looking to schools to help with children's emotions today. And that is the reported crisis in young people's mental health. Even before the pandemic, international surveys showed that children in the UK were some of the saddest in the world. The children of only two countries, Turkey and Brunei, have lower life satisfaction than young people in the United Kingdom. Research produced by the Office for National Statistics confirms rising rates of unhappiness and distress among young people in the UK. And a statistic I've heard a lot is that one in six children has a diagnosable mental health condition. One in six, that does sound like an awful lot. Can it really be that five children in an average classroom in the UK have a mental illness? Dr Lucy Folkes is a psychologist based at the Anna Freud Centre in London. Her most recent book is called Losing Our Minds, What Mental Health Really Is and What It Isn't. Does she think there's a worsening crisis in children and young people's mental health? Yes, I think things are getting worse, possibly, but I'm slightly cautious about using the word crisis. What is the evidence that it's getting worse, say, over the last 10 years or so? What is the evidence that it's getting worse? There have been lots of studies that give children and adolescents the same questionnaire repeatedly over several years or decades. And if you look at those studies, yeah, children and adolescents report that they are more unhappy or more anxious than they used to. Some of these are standardised questionnaires about depression, for example, and anxiety. So symptoms like, you know, I feel down a lot of the time or about finding it difficult to control worry or finding it difficult to sleep or feeling upset, for example. Or there's the organisation... Um, the Children's Society in the Good Childhood Report, they ask questions about happiness, so whether children are happy in various domains of their life, like with school, with their friends. And what they found is that year on year, over a period of time, like a decade, for example, if you ask groups of children the same questions over several years, uh, their scores are getting worse. So the scores indicate that children and young people are more unhappy or more worried than children were a decade ago. Alex Turner is the Applied Research Lead at the Children's Society, the organisation mentioned by Lucy Folkes that produces the Good Childhood Report, looking at happiness and well-being amongst children and young people in the UK. I asked Alex if she thinks there's a crisis in children's and young people's mental health at the moment. Yes, we definitely see this in our services, in the level of need that comes out of official statistics, but also in talking to children and young people themselves, this is something that's really concerning them at the moment. And I think the pandemic has definitely amplified that. And crisis, what would be the sort of evidence for that? What would make us think this is a, this is a crisis level that we're getting to? 
So the number of referrals has been increasing and, and the waiting time between being referred for especially specialist mental health services and actually being seen by professionals has been increasing. And there's a real postcode lottery across the country with regards to that. When you say referrals, is that to CAMS? The, That's the children? to CAMS, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's to specialist children's and mental health services, but also to um, the early intervention kind of drop-in centres as well. The need for that definitely has been coming from young people. Okay, so your impression is the crisis is not an overstatement? No. Okay. Now, I've seen this reported in various ways and various statistics that are, that are reported. And one that I've come across a lot is that one in six children and young people have a diagnosable mental health condition. I wonder if you think that is accurate and is that a good way to report it? I think one in six children are struggling with their mental health and their well-being. I think the criteria around diagnosable is... Um, questionable or debatable depending on which field that you're looking at I think there's a lot of academic debate in this area what I think isn't debatable is that there are children that need this help and that is definitely increasing because the children themselves are telling us this I went into my interviews with Adrian Lucy and Alex feeling quite skeptical about the reporting of this so-called crisis in young people's mental health but it's pretty clear that children are reporting that they're feeling less happy and more worried and that it's getting harder and harder to access mental health services, to the point that in some places it's more or less impossible. There is no doubting this reality. But it's still important to reflect on what lies behind the statistics showing these increasing levels of distress, as Lucy Folks explained to me. Children reporting that they're feeling less happy or more worried, there could be various different reasons for that. Um, And it could be that the kind of standards are shifting or that young people's understanding of emotions and mental health is shifting. Or it could be that there is more suffering, there is more unhappiness, there is more mental illness. Can we tell which of those things it is? So, yeah, I think I see it as there being three different potential answers. So one is that things really are worse and there's lots of potential reasons for that like social media or increased inequality um, financially for example so that's one explanation things really are getting worse the second possibility is that we're just more willing to talk about it now so children have always been unhappy it's just that they're because of reduced stigma they're actually confident saying it now which is a good thing And the third possibility is that which I think is the most interesting one is that there's been a shift in the way we understand what counts as being unhappy or you know low mood so if you ask children to answer the question you know I feel unhappy the way they conceptualize that is completely different to the way a child would understand that question 10 years ago they are now more readily interpreting you know a transient mood as a problem so they tick a higher score than a child might have done in the past there's no way of unpacking which of those three things it is I don't think I think it's probably a bit of everything mm-hmm One thing I know that you are interested in is the way that boundaries are drawn between everyday emotions and mental illnesses. Um, And I wonder if you think that that border has been moving, there's been a kind of an expansion of the, the areas that people now think of as mental illnesses rather than everyday feelings that we just encounter as part of being human. Definitely. So I think kind of from the top professionally that that boundary has shifted. So the psychiatric Bible that records what counts as a mental illness and what doesn't has changed over the past 50 years. Those boundaries have expanded in favour of milder and milder problems. So professionally, yes, that line has shifted. But I also think uh, anecdotally in society, that line has shifted because of all these well-meaning conversations to talk more about how we feel we are now more readily interpreting mild problems as uh, potential signs of illness. 
And what is the problem with that? It, well, I'm assuming from the way you talk about mm. it that, that you think that is a problem potentially. So what are the potential dangers of treating normal emotions as signs of illness? I think it's a problem for the people who are just, in inverted commas, experiencing mild versions of the problem because it's unnecessarily um, pathologizing and frightening and stigmatizing and you can end up making something worse if you label it as depression rather than seeing it as a kind of transient low mood for example I think people do need language to talk about when they're unhappy but I think that's a cost of too readily thinking about it as an emotion as an illness or a disorder then I also think it's a problem for the people at the at the more extreme end of the spectrum so people who really are seriously unwell or in distress I think if you use that language for everyone it loses meaning and value for the people who need it the most. Louis Weinstock is a psychotherapist who works with children and with the child within us all. He writes about the crisis in young people's mental health in his recent book How the World is Making Our Children Mad and What to Do About It. The problem with mental health is it's hugely an internal subjective experience like if you cut yourself or if you break your leg you can really see that you know visually or in an x-ray you can see the damage that you've done but with mental health it's um, more invisible and so it's great that more and more people are aware of things like anxiety and depression and ADHD and all of these things the downside is um, once a young person gets a hold of one of those terms, they start to analyse their own experience according to those terms. And there's this kind of uh, internal process of almost like a co-creation. That's maybe not the best word, but certainly there's a hypervigilance that can come. And with mental health, you can actually lead yourself into a mental illness by really anxiously monitoring your symptoms. So I don't see it as an either or, if that makes sense. It's not, oh, we've got more awareness and that's making kids think they're mentally ill. It can actually, you know, if it's delivered in the wrong way without the actual right tools to think critically about these things, it can actually generate real symptoms. So there's sort of a feedback loop, you're saying, where yeah. you have distress, you latch onto the language that's made available to you, maybe in your school or in your social media about uh, disorders, and then you label yourself that way and inhabit that kind of identity. Yes, but it has real physiological effects. Yeah, yeah it's not all in the mind. It's not all in the mind. Although in one way it is. (laughs) This kind of feedback loop is something that I worry about. Are lessons about mental health problems going to become self-fulfilling prophecies? I discussed this with Adrian Bethune too, after we'd watched his lesson about worrying. Another worry I have is that children are learning to think of negative emotions as symptoms of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may be more at secondary than at primary, but do you worry about that, that teaching children to think about emotions in certain ways, they might start to see all negative emotions as potential mental illnesses? Yeah, I do. I, I do think that part of teaching children in schools should be about normalising emotions that we feel of you know, full spectrum of different emotions in different situations, you know, to feel sad because our pet has died, to feel low because we're being left out of a a game, to feel lonely because we don't feel like we've got a group of friends or we're not in the in crowd. These are all 
natural human responses to life's ups and downs. And I think, yeah, I think normalising is a way of guarding against children seeing their sadness as depression or their normal worries as, you know, acute anxiety. So I was delivering a workshop to a year six class in another school and I asked a question and a, and a girl put her hand up, so she would have been about 10 years old, and she said, um, oh, but, you know, I have anxiety, and then she gave her answer. And I, I remember in that moment just feeling a bit sad that a 10-year-old was was seeing herself that way, and, and for all I know, she might have seen a clinical psychologist and had that official diagnosis, but I wasn't sure how helpful it was for her to to feel like I have anxiety, like it was, it, the way she described it was as though it defined her. And it sounds kind of fixed, doesn't it? Like that's mm. it forever, she's got anxiety. And yeah. Not something that might change. Exactly. So I do think there is a risk that we pathologise like, what is normal. Um, so again, I, I think good education at school can help mitigate that risk. Exactly. But even if you think, as I do, that it is a good idea for schools to offer children lessons about emotions and well-being, and that we should give children what Louis Weinstock calls the right tools for working with those topics, there's still the big question of exactly what tools those should be. The developing emotions lessons that my colleagues and I have produced use history, art, literature, music and philosophy to teach children about emotions, past and present, as a way to boost their emotional literacy. And I've visited lots of schools to see what they're doing and to discuss the best ways to put feelings on the curriculum. For Adrian Bethune, it's a combination of mindfulness, neuroscience and positive psychology. But there are many different approaches. Hello, good morning everyone. We're at Charles Dickens research school in Southwark in South London near London Bridge and uh, it's a school that has put a lot of work and effort into developing lessons to support emotional literacy and well-being in their children and I'm excited to meet the teachers and the head Mr Eggleton to find out why they do this and whether it but works. That's the, uh, is, yes, it is. That's the, the like um, circumplex model of emotions yeah. with the high energy, low energy, right, pleasant, yeah. unpleasant. So do kids learn that? Yeah, they do, yeah. It's the Charles Dickens School in Southwark has its own well-being curriculum developed by the head teacher and his colleagues. A central element of that curriculum is emotional literacy, helping children to name and talk about their feelings and emotions. And they start very young. The children in Oliver class are in year two, so they are six and seven years old. Anyway, guys, speaking of happiness and joy, we're going to do our well-being lesson. Now, I can see on our mood meter that there's a real mix of emotions. There's even some upside down names here, which is a bit strange. There's a real mix of emotions today, which is normal, which is normal. And what's not that surprising is that there's, there's quite a lot of low energy because it's, it's late in the week, isn't it? It's a Thursday and I know lots of us are feeling maybe a little bit tired and I can see, I can see Elias. If it's, oh, can I share, Elias, that your name's down there? And Elias is right about where tired is. So, 
I think we're quite a unique setting in the fact that we have well-being lessons for all. So I, I guess in the way that schools teach PE lessons to support not only knowledge and skill within sport, but to develop physical health as well. And we've actually got a universal offer for all children to support mental health. And I think that's something that's really important because what we know about mental health is it's not necessarily going to cause a child to scream and shout and perhaps be disruptive within the classroom, but it will mean that they do need strategies coping strategies um, either in the short term or long term. It's check-in time. So when I ring the bell, I want you to fill in these two parts of the box. I've got two questions. Our first question says, actually, could you read that first question for me, please, Florence? How do you feel now? How do you feel now? How do you feel now? And the second question, that second question, could you read it, please, Musa? What has made you feel this way? So how do you feel now? What has made you feel this way? If it was me filling it in, and actually this is my book, I'm fe feeling, well, I'm feeling a little bit tired, but um, I wouldn't say I'm feeling drained. I have got a bit more energy. Um, I, I'm feeling quite calm, actually. I'm feeling quite calm. And the reason why I'm feeling this way is that I had a, I had a really nice start to the day. The sun is shining. I had a nice walk from the station today. I had a lovely cup of coffee and me and Peggy had a nice chat on the way in. So that's what's made me feel this way. When I ring the bell, take your pencil. How do you feel now and what has made you feel this way? It's not our job as a school to be diagnosing children with any sort of mental health concern. However, I think there are certain aspects of our job that we can prevent um, things perhaps bubbling up or becoming an issue either um, during a, a childhood or even later in life. And we felt the need to do something about that and we were about six or seven years ago we were heavily reliant upon external support we would use cams you know freely and think well gosh i don't know what's going on here let's do a cams referral and we know that's part of the problem um, with the nhs is that uh, professionals are putting in referrals perhaps where it's needed or not needed, um, as the case may be. So we felt that probably wasn't the right approach. Um, we were using an educational psychologist to support. Again, if we think about the money aspect of that, I think that's an issue for schools. If we think about the reach of an educational psychologist, it's relatively small. We have just under 500 children here. Even if we could afford to employ that education psychologist every day, which we can't, um, it would be very few children would actually get supported. So what could we do to support the all? Um, so we looked out there at uh, the evidence base for whole school approaches and we liked something called Ruler. It had been developed by Yale University. It had a longitudinal study over about 25 years at the time. So we felt actually if we were going to put our money anywhere, we're going to hedge our bets. This is something that we felt we, we had confidence in. So we learnt about it and now we've embedded it in the school. But what we think we've done is we've kind of made it our own. Thank you very much. Well done everyone for taking your pencils. Eyes on the board, please, guys. So we've got our colours here with our amount of energy and our pleasantness. And we are looking for a certain emotion today. We are looking at something that we actually talked about on the stairs the other day. We're talking about feeling bored. Oh, now, luckily, not many people get to feel bored in all of the class because it's so much fun. But where would boredom go on our colour chart. Where would feeling bored go on our colour chart? I tell you what, when I ring the bell, when I ring the bell, I'd like you to talk to the person next to you. Where do you think bored would go? Where would feeling bored go?
And you could even mark it on your colour chart as well. Thank you. So I believe you actually went to Yale, is that right, to get some training in the ruler approach? We did. We did. Um, it was four of us. We did a two-day course. Uh, yeah, I mean, my jaw <laughs> dropped when you first told me that. That's quite an amazing opportunity we for were four of you lucky. to go to Yale and learn from, from them. <laughs> we were very, very lucky. Yeah, I'm not asking you to give me a sort of in-depth uh, seminar in the ruler approach right now, mm. but one thing I'm interested in, which I know is quite central to it, is that model of emotions they've got, which is sort of a circle. I think it's sometimes mm. called the circumplex model of, of emotion. Yeah. Could you describe that to us and, and tell us what you call it in the school and how you use that absolutely yeah um, so I guess it's quite commonplace now I think if you look at different schemes um, you'll see something quite similar um, ruler call it the mood meter um, and that's what we have adopted we just call it the feelings well wheel in the school now because we we, we we like that term it sounded nice and um, the reason for it it allows children to be able to identify their emotions in in quite a logical way because they can focus on um, pleasant and unpleasant emotions energy high energy and and what we like about it is it kind of moves away from uh, the I guess the opinion of some people where some negative um, some emotions are seen as negative and actually they're not or all, all emotions can serve us in some way shape or form but we need to be able to identify them and once we're able to identify them using the colour um, children can link the vocabulary and, and that's the key aspect of the ruder approach and what we've got here is educating the children um, as to what these emotions feel like, look like, what they look like in other people, how we can regulate them in the short term and then long term. And will I be right in saying that every class has this mood meter or uh, feelings wheel on the wall? Absolutely. And we just saw a class where they'd actually put their names on the point on the wheel where they felt they were this morning. Yeah. Is that, and is it. that in every class? Absolutely, in every single classroom. So they get that all the way through and it's, it's a kind of common, it's a whole school approach, it's yeah. a common language to the whole school. That's it. I think that most people who had the opportunity, as I have, to observe the lessons offered by Adrian, Michael and many other teachers in schools up and down the country would see the value in them. They offer children a vocabulary, some simple concepts and a few practical techniques all of which can help them to articulate and deal with that mess inside that we call our emotions. But there are legitimate questions to be asked about this approach too. We've already encountered some of them. Should schools focus overwhelmingly on academic subjects rather than spending their time on feelings? Will going on about emotions encourage children to become excessively inward-looking and more vulnerable to mental illness as a result? Would it be better, perhaps, if children shut away their emotions in their locker for the duration of the school day, perhaps along with their mobile phones? I went to Michaela School in North London to meet Catherine Burble-Singh, famously known as Britain's strictest headteacher and now also the chair of the government's Social Mobility Commission. Well, we're a school that teaches resilience <laughs> and teaches kids to push on through. These are our pips for the change of lesson. And then they have to move. Now, this is the difference here. Normally in a school at this time, you would hear... But it's quiet, you don't hear that. but you can All hear, you hear the furniture chairs. and people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so should I try... OK. Yeah. <laughs> it's OK, I'll take a cup of water. Um, the classrooms and corridors at Michaela are calm and quiet. In the playground, large, brightly coloured hoardings carry moral messages. Do your duty. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those last two phrases are from a famous Victorian poem by W.E. Henley. Its title, Invictus, is the Latin for unconquered. And Henley himself 
had endured great childhood adversity, having had his left leg amputated as a result of tuberculosis. So either of you had to learn the poem Invictus? Yes. yes. Yeah? Do you know it? Can you tell me some of it? It's not a test, but I'm just curious. Do you... yeah, so the starting line is out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Amazing. Just on this topic of mental health and the crisis, there's a, a statistic I've seen repeated a lot, which is one in six children have a diagnosable mental health condition. Is that a message that you would recognise or that you would think was helpful? I certainly don't think it's helpful. In the same way as I don't think it's helpful to tell children that the world is racist and sexist. And that's because if you keep telling children that the world is against them, they will give up and they won't want to be resilient and stoical and they won't persevere. The thing about life is that it throws you all kinds of knocks. And I think it's our job as adults to help children get through those knocks, not to allow the knocks to ruin them. They've only got one life. So would you interpret saying that children, young people, have a mental health condition is, quote, giving up? Is it not a way of saying, well, you have depression now, um, you have uh, social anxiety disorder, we need to help you? Uh, it's not to say that you wouldn't want to deal with the issues. You just don't want to keep talking about it all the time. Um, it's not helpful. Just like with when you have a black kid... You don't want to be going on about, well, you're black and, you know, the world is dominated by white people. And when you go into the city to get some big job that you want, well, actually, it's the, you're going to be working for all these white bosses and white people aren't going to want to promote you. And did you know that when you send your CV out, you're less likely to get shortlisted because you're black? I mean, that might be true. <laughs> but if you keep telling them that, they just it's just human nature. You give up. OK. Um, and that doesn't mean that you're not black. In the same ways, it doesn't mean that you don't have the mental health issue that you're talking about. So you're not saying the mental health issue doesn't exist, like you're not saying racism doesn't exist, but you're saying your approach to it is not to focus on it as a problem all the time, but to give them other skills and other techniques to be resilient. And, and to overcome. You know the old phrase about you give a man a fish and he eats for a day, but you teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. I believe as parents and as teachers, we're meant to teach them how to fish so that they can eat, eat for a lifetime. OK, so in terms of dealing with difficult emotions and feelings, depression, anxiety and, and those difficult feelings that teenagers in particular will always be confronting, what is the equivalent of teaching them how to fish? And is it on the curriculum you know, here at Michaela? Do they get lessons on how to fish, emotionally no. speaking? No, no, no. It's just in dealing with the issues as they come up. I mean, obviously, we've got an a normal set of kids. So just like any other school, they have issues. And it's about helping them through those issues and showing them how they've got it in them to be able to do it. Because otherwise, they'll just end up on the scrap heap of life. I think this approach can, to some people, sound quite harsh, I suppose. You know, the, the kids have got to learn. I know, I, I believe I'm right in thinking that you... Um, like the poem Invictus, and that children here learn that poem. And I guess I saw a quote from it um, outside about being the captain of your soul. That can seem quite demanding to say to a child, "You, it's all down to you, yeah? Um, do you think that it's putting too much on the individual to say you are responsible you know, for your feelings, your emotions, your emotional problems, and you've got to be the captain of your soul? Well, the trick of parenting and teaching is that you say that to them, but of course you're supporting them all the way. 
that's the trick. <laughs> so that they feel like they're doing it on their own, but that actually you're there behind them and you've got their back all mm. the time. We've learned other poems as well, like Caesar. Caesar. Oh, I don't know that one. Um, Can we give us a... Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Yes. And who wrote the poem? Julius Caesar wrote the poem. Shakespeare. The play. Oh, from Julius Caesar. Sorry, I'm showing my ignorance. Okay. Yeah, do you want to give us a bit of that one? Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. Of all the wonders that I yet have heard, it seems to me most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. Caesar should be a beast without a half heart if he should stay at home today for fear. No, Caesar shall not. Danger knows full well that Caesar is more dangerous than he. We are two lions littered in one day, and I, the elder, more terrible, and Caesar shall go forth. As well as being extremely polite about my embarrassing lack of literary knowledge, the children I met at Michaela seemed happy and confident. They engaged me in lively conversation over lunch, and one boy told me about the football team at the school, called the Stoics, and how they often lost because they had to do extra revision after school instead of football practice. I thought this was a nice example of the Michaela philosophy of tough love. Winning in life, through good exam grades, might mean having to lose stoically on the football pitch and then of course as they're growing up and getting older that support you can pull it away bit by bit and then sometimes kids fall down halfway through they have an anxiety issue some issue at home whatever it is but they um yeah they, they you you bring in that support and then you pull it away a little bit because you're always trying to support pull away support pull away because otherwise if they're entirely dependent on you by the time they leave, well, what's going to happen to them? Where are they going to go? Life is just going to knock them over. You're meant to create children who are resilient, who can cope with whatever life throws them. And especially if you're working with a disadvantaged intake, because otherwise that disadvantaged intake will go off and not do very well in life. And then all we'll do is say it was because of poverty. But I would say it was because we didn't properly support them when they were at school. So you say it's mean. I say it's love. I say that that's how you love a child. Every school is different. Secondary schools are different from primary schools. And what works in one setting will not be appropriate in another. The Michaela approach to feelings and emotions is at one stoical yet supportive end of a very wide and diverse spectrum. And the idea that love is at the heart of education is an ancient and admirable one. As far as I'm concerned, people should not be looking for a single approach to feelings and emotions that can then be rolled out across all schools. There are so many variables in terms of what will suit a particular group of teachers, children and their wider communities. For some, emotional vocabulary may be a priority. For others, practical techniques to diffuse anger or anxiety. And the only way policymakers and school leaders can make informed decisions is by finding out what young people themselves know, think and feel about their feelings. And that's something that Dr Alex Turner from the Children's Society does. Every year since 2010, the Children's Society has produced their annual Good Childhood Report based on surveying thousands of children and their families to discover what matters to them and how satisfied they are with various aspects of their lives, including their home, their family, their appearance, 
and their schooling. We have our survey that goes into the field every year in April to June. So last year during the pandemic, we were able to capture how children were feeling during that first lockdown. And we did see some significant shifts in the aspects that children were least happy with. And last year, the aspect that children said that they were least happy with was choice, which probably is unsurprising given that none of us had any choice at that hmm. time. Um, in this year's survey, we did see it revert back to kind of the order that we would normally see with children being least happy with school and unfortunately their appearance. I have to say, as someone who's very interested in the work that schools can do to improve emotional well-being, that this is one of the most depressing facts I have discovered. Currently in the UK, school is the aspect of their lives that young people are least satisfied with. I asked Alex Turner why that should be. Well, school is a really, it's a unique thing to childhood. It's a place where you lose all autonomy because it's somewhere you have to be, you have no choice over and you have no control while you're there. So it is quite a difficult thing for children, especially adolescents, to kind of navigate. And we also do see that there is a real difference in how primary school children relate to this to secondary school. Okay, so are primary school children happier with school? Usually, yes. Yeah. Uh, but this is dependent on the schools. Yeah, because, I mean, anecdotally, just from my own experience, I, as you know, I visit quite a lot of primary schools, and they, they tend to, the children, obviously I only see a small sample, but they tend to seem quite happy places. And when I've done little focus groups sometimes, very frequently the kind of comments I get from children is that school is a happier place than home, that it's some kind of emotional refuge for them. Sometimes they've got difficult or tiring or stressful or angry home life or whatever it might be. And school is quite calm and, and, and quite a nice place for them. Obviously, that's not true for everybody. No. And I think that's the thing with subjective wellbeing. It is based on the individual. So while it's useful to look at cohorts, you can't take away from the fact that someone's individual experience is going to differ. I think this recognition of difference is crucial and it should be our starting point. Some years ago, I ran a lesson about emotions with a group of seven- and eight-year-olds. And one girl, who'd been quiet throughout the lesson, put her hand up. She wanted to say that sometimes people say that everyone should feel the same way about something. But I think, she said, that we should feel, like, differently. Feeling differently is the one thing that remains constant through the history of emotions from those infants in the 1820s being taught to conquer their bad passions, to children learning mindfulness techniques in the 2020s. Between historical periods, different cultures, and even across individuals in the same family or the same classroom, people feel differently. And that includes their feelings about feelings. So no one should be taught that they must feel a certain way, or that they are obliged to display certain emotions. But given the centrality of feelings and emotions in all our lives, their potential to go awry in early life, and their contributions to our well-being, it surely makes sense for them to retain their historic place on the school curriculum. Well done, everyone. Eyes this way. Thank you, Musa. Do you know what? I loved doing that lesson today. When I first looked at that lesson, I thought it was all about boredom. It's not going to be very nice. But actually, I think we've all had some great ideas how we can feel less bored. Brilliant work, guys. When I ring the bell, I'd like you to close your booklets, pass them to the end, stationary away, and let's see who's going to help Mr. Lee with the next job. Could be Lee. He's already sitting brilliantly. Could be Naraya. Could be Flo. Could be use. Here you go. Here you go. 
That was Living with Feeling. It was produced by Natalie Steed. We're grateful to the Wellcome Trust for their generosity in making the series possible. To hear more episodes, subscribe to Living with Feeling on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And find out more about our work by visiting the Emotions Lab website.